Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. This is the word of the Lord. Now there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bacorath, the son of Aphiah, the son of a Benjamite, a mighty man of valor. He had a son whose name was Saul, a choice and handsome man. And there was not a more handsome person than he among the sons of Israel. From his shoulders and up, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to his son Saul, Take now with you one of the servants and arise, go search for the donkeys. He passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalisha, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then he passed through the land of the Benjamites, but they did not find them. And when they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come and let us return, or else my father will cease to be concerned about the donkeys and will become anxious for us. He said to him, Behold, now there is a man of God in this city, and the man is held in honor. All that he says surely comes true. Now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us about our journey on which we have set out. Then Saul said to his servant, But behold, if we go, what shall we bring the man? For the bread is gone from our sack, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again and said, Behold, I have in my hand a fourth of a shekel of silver. I will give it to the man of God, and he will tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he used to say, Come and let us go to the seer. For he who is called a prophet now was formerly called a seer. Then Saul said to his servant, Well said, Come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up the slope to the city, they found young women going out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered them and said, He is. See, he is ahead of you. Hurry now, for he has come into the city today, for the people have a sacrifice on the high place today. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until he comes, because he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now therefore, go up, for you will find him at once. So they went up to the city, and as they came into the city, behold, Samuel was coming out toward them to go up to the high place. Now a day before Saul's coming, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel, saying, About this time tomorrow I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have regarded my people, because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, Behold, the man of whom I spoke to you, this one shall rule over my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Please, tell me where the seer's house is. And Samuel answered Saul and said, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for you shall eat with me today. And in the morning I will let you go, and will tell you all that is on your mind. 
As for your donkeys, which were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's household? Saul replied, Am I not a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel, and my family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why do you speak to me in this way? And Samuel took Saul and his servant and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who were invited, who were about 30 men. Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion that I gave you, concerning which I said to you, set it aside. Then the cook took, the leg, cook took up the leg with what was on it and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, Here is what has been reserved. Set it before you and eat because it has been kept for you until the appointed time since I said I have invited the people. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place into the city, Samuel spoke with Saul on the roof. And they rose early, and at daybreak Samuel called to Saul on the roof, saying, Get up, that I may send you away. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the edge of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Say to the servant that he might go ahead of us and pass on, but you remain standing now, that I may proclaim the word of God to you. This is the word of the Lord. So, 1 Samuel 8, if you go back, you'll remember is the request for a king. From the people. They request a king, and we said that was good and it was bad, or it was legal and illegal. Uh, it was a mixed, mixed sort of situation, right? They, the, the, the law made provision for a king, right? And there are prophecies of a king being over Israel from Genesis onward. And yet, they, it was clear that their motives in asking for a king were impure, that they wanted to be like the nation surrounding them. But indeed, the king was supposed to make them unlike the nation surrounding them. He was to lead them in righteousness, and they were to be set apart. That was why he was to read the law and know the law and teach the law. Okay, so, um, And so that, that comes in, in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Um, Samuel comes to terms with it. God tells Samuel to set up a king. And now in chapter 9, we uh, come upon what seem like just strangely normal circumstances. A man's son goes out looking for his lost donkeys. Right? Just a very, very common situation. And... um, We would say, we, we could kind of say that it started just as the ordinary day in the life of Saul, but it became uh, quite extraordinary from that point on. And God was providentially arranging even, even this little thing like lost donkeys to get Saul to Samuel. Um, so Saul is traveling across land uh, and, and significant um, travel and looking for the livelihood of his father. Now, it, it seems insignificant to us, but this was, 
is like losing the tractor on your farm, right? There's significant, I mean, significant usefulness and uh, position for these animals in the in this. So um, don't don't think of it as too little. Um, someone would have traveled to look for their donkeys because they needed them for uh, the work of the farm. But um, we start with Saul's father, Kish. And we learn a few things of him. We learn uh, of his fathers, but we learn that he is a man of Benjamin. Now, what do we know about the tribe of Benjamin? What do we know about the recent history of the tribe of Benjamin? Or somewhat, yeah, somewhat recent. What's that? Why were they almost wiped out? Okay. Yeah, if you go if you go to the end of Judges, um, you know those those strange chapters. But um, the uh, there is sin in the city of Gibeah, right, which is in the tribe of Benjamin, and um, <clears throat> the. Uh, there, there are parallels between this chapter and what other chapter of Scripture? Like parallel, yeah, Sodom and Gomorrah, right? There are parallels between that, and so it's significant the sin that's going on in this city of Benjamin, and that leads to civil war between the tribes of Benjamin and the other tribes of Israel, and almost all of the tribe of Benjamin is killed. How many men are left? 600. 600 men are left. And so that is the tribe. And that, you know, that's just a few chapters back um, as far as timing. And so um, that is the tribe to which the first king of Israel will come. I mean, think about that. Um, At this point in the history of Israel, being a Benjamite is not a glorious thing. Paul boasts about it later, right, a Benjamin, a Benjamite, a uh, a Pharisee. But now it's not a very glorious thing. They've been decimated. They've been put down. They're the smallest, the least tribe, and no one likes them. And that is the tribe to which God goes to select the king who will rule over them, a Benjamite. Now, we know that he's a man of wealth. He's a mighty man of valor. That, that means that he was, uh, it can also mean that he was a man of, of, um, of wealth, of position, of standing. And um, if we go to chapter 10 uh, at 26, it says that Saul also went to his house at Gibeah. He's from that very city. That, uh, that the great sin took place in. He's from that city, this infamous city. Uh, and so, I mean, what do we make of that? Is that a rebuke to Israel? 
Is it God saying to them, you've asked for a king, I will give you a king? In a in certain sense it is. But it also could be like Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians. He chooses the despised things to confound the wise. Right? He's chosen a despised Benjamite to rule over the people of Israel. And, and so... I think it's, it's significant that we remember that recent history of Benjamin. Now, Saul, do you know what the word, the name Saul means? Does anybody know what the name Saul means? The name Saul means asked. And why is that significant? Well, every time the name of Saul comes up, they're going to be reminded that this is the king that you asked for. Name means asked. So, so I that that again is a significant reminder to them that this is they they've called for this and they will now have what they called for. Um, perhaps it's a, um, I mean, clearly it's a, a pun on their actions. But later, Saul's name would probably become an irritant to the people. Asked. What do we know about Saul then? He is choice and handsome. He's tall. He does, he, he appears to be an obedient son. His father asks him to go and find, and he goes and finds the donkeys, right? So he's doing what his father asks, not like Samuel's sons, not like Eli's sons. This son is actually doing the will of his father. And why do you think Scripture takes the time to describe Saul's appearance? It's like you know Scripture or something. (laughs) Yes, exactly. I mean, 1 Samuel chapter 16 when the kingdom is taken away from Saul and given to David, right, there's that statement about man looking on the outward appearance, but God, God looks upon the heart. And that's Samuel saying that. But the Lord said to... Well, it's, it's God speaking to Samuel. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not... So God comes to Samuel and says, you chose the handsome man, but, but listen, do not look at his appearance... Or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him, for God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You think of this in regard to the king of kings as well. What do we know about the appearance of Jesus Christ? He wasn't like Saul, right? He did not stand a shoulder above everybody else. It says in Isaiah 53, he had no stately form or majesty like Saul had, that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. So that's how Jesus is described in Isaiah 53. And yet here, Saul is being, is being put forward as a handsome man and as a tall man. Now, there's something else significant about his height being mentioned. What do you, why would his height be mentioned? 
Go deep. Ooh. No, I hadn't thought of that. Um, I mean, it's very simple, I think. Well, he hides later, yeah, so that... Um, Many kings in history were tall. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I mean, tall guys are intimidating, right? You want a tall, you want reach in the boxing ring, right? You want height. It's an advantage for warfare. So they're asking for a man who will fight their battles for them, right? So they're not going to choose somebody who doesn't appear to be able to fight. So I think even in, in their height, even in their height, God is, God is um, I mean, it, it, they're, they're getting what they, they've asked for. God was going to fight their battles, but no, they want a king who will fight their battles for them. And so they get a man who's handsome, who is uh, taller than average, and who looks powerful. Now, we know that that's foolishness, right? Right? No matter how tall a man is, Goliath falls in a moment. And um, you don't trade a tall man for God Almighty, Lord of hosts. You don't do, do such foolishness. Now, this ordinary day, so that, that's what we know about, about Saul. I mean, you think, you think about... Um, I mean, you think about the uh, leaders that we chose. I think uh, maybe Trump broke, broke the rule here. But um, handsome and tall men do get elected more often than not. I mean, I think they've done studies on the attractiveness of, of political candidates. And we have a tendency, right, to look on the outward appearance rather than upon... Uh, rather than analyzing actions or, or certainly looking upon the heart, which God does, and we can't. We look on the outward appearance. We make, we make judgments upon outward appearance. We do that all day long, all of us do. And so uh, here we see that played out in the selection of, of Saul. Now, this is an extraordinary day with ordinary events. An extraordinary day with ordinary events leading to the extraordinary. Lost donkeys, a valuable asset. Um, Proverbs 16.9 is one of those, it's one of the first scriptures that I memorized for some reason. There was uh, Philippians chapter 4 um, that I memorized early on in my, my uh, Christian walk. And then Proverbs 16.9. Uh, struck something in me. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Right? Saul had it in mind what he was doing, but he had no idea when he set out what the Lord intended for those actions. Ever had seemingly random events lead to something greater? Have you ever experienced that? Of course you have. I think all of us have... Uh, uh, have woken up on in, in a day and thought we were going to have an extraordinary run or a, a, an ordinary run of the day, and the ordinary things that we had planned out turn out to be something much larger than we expected that the Lord uses. 
Um, you wreck your car, they find the cancer in your body. That sort of situation, right? You break a bone, they take an x-ray, they find cancer. You think it's going to be ordinary, but it's extraordinary. Um, you choose your graduate school, you meet your wife. Um, things like that. Okay, and so here, uh, Saul does not anticipate what's coming, uh, but Samuel knows about it. Samuel is given, uh, is tipped off by the Lord. Uh, I think it's interesting, this little aside in chapter, in, in verse 9, formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he used to say, come and let us go to the seer. And what, I mean, seer has a very different feel to it. Seer is somebody you go to in order to, to find out what's coming, right? Like a, a predictor of the future, a, a prophet in that sense. But we know that the prophets of the Lord are more than just seers. They function in that way, but they also proclaim the word of God, which is, a, which is an entirely different function than just predicting what's coming ahead, um, though they do that both. But... That's what they called their prophets before. And so Saul refers to Samuel as the seer and goes to him for that purpose. Tell me where those, those animals went. Um, let me know what's ahead. Now, Samuel is offering sacrifices on the high places. Um, and so uh, he's arranging what's going to come. He's offering the sacrifices... And um, what, what does he set aside for Saul? I don't know if it's a, a portion, but what portion? A leg. What, what's the deal with um, a leg being set aside for Saul? Well... Leviticus 7, um, the leg was to go to the sons of the high priest. Okay, the one among the sons of the Aaron who offers the blood of the peace offerings and the fat, the right thigh shall be his as his portion. And so the leg of the peace offering belonged to the priest who assisted in the sacrifice. So in, in Samuel giving Saul to this, he's designating some authority to Saul, right? It, it's not an insignificant thing that he gets this leg. It's, it's clearly not insignificant to Samuel because he goes through, you know, making it happen. Set aside this specific part of the sacrifice for Saul. And so in, in some sense, this is part of his anointing as the king. It's just the fact that he gets a leg uh, to feast on. Uh, so, um, even though he's being, even though he's not a priest, right, there's symbolism in that leg portion coming from Samuel to Saul. And so Saul ate with Samuel that day, and then, um, and then the text says, stand that I may proclaim the word of God to you. So Samuel is now working in that other uh, role as prophet, not the seer, but as the proclaimer of the word of God. And so um, 
he then, in the next chapter, goes on to speak uh, to Saul about what's coming. Um, We're not going to get into that yet, but read ahead in chapter 10 this week and think through this passage. Chapter 10 is one of those passages that you you come back to, and it's perplexing. Saul is clearly a man chosen by God. It says that the Spirit of the Lord will come upon him mightily. It says that he's a changed man in it. And yet, what do we know about Saul? We know that Saul uh, clearly is set against the Lord by the end of his his, uh, walk as the king. And so, think through that passage as we come to it. Um, the um, <clears throat> anyway, a few a few applications out of chapter nine. At this point in Israel, what does it appear to the people is happening? To, for all appearances, everything seems well. Right? They've asked for a king. God has consented. The the, the prophet has consented as well. Um, he's been found, and he's going to be set up, and all appears well, but not all will be well with Saul. He will indeed uh, disobey God and will not be godly, and that will be a scourge to the people. Um, also, in chapter 9, don't forget that the ordinary is arranged by God. I think this is something that we should we should wake up in the morning realizing. Expand your view of the providence of God. The ordinary things that are happening have been arranged by God for his purposes, right? The child who woke up in the middle of the night has been arranged for some sort of purpose for you. God providentially acts in these things. Now, they don't often turn in, we we don't often know why. We don't often see the extraordinary come out of these things. But um, the providence of God we should be thinking about. What What does meditating on God being provident lead to? Or what should it lead to for us? Peace. Humility. Joy, obedience, boldness. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we all have a sense of this that that all these and, and a freedom from anxiety, right? If we know that God is is providential over what is occurring, there's no need to fret. There's no need to. Uh, get enraged. There's no need to fly off the handle. Right? We can know uh, the peace that God has arranged these things for our good. Now, God may have arranged many things for our discipline as well, but are we to be upset by that? No. What is, what is the discipline of your father proof? He loves you. And that you're his son. Right? It proves that he has his affection set upon you and that he cares for you and that he wants you to come along. And so 
Um, even those hard things that are arranged that, that feel as if God is pressing down upon us are the discipline of the Lord. Go read Hebrews 12, and you'll be reminded of this. Um, it's not pleasant at the moment. The things we struggle through are not pleasant at the moment, but they yield fruit, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Um, and then this, the, um, look at verse 16. Now, the day before Saul's coming, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel. And this is God speaking to Samuel. About this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. And he will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have regarded my people, because their cry has come to me. What we have to realize is, that's amazing mercy from God. In the previous chapter, he said, they haven't rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me from being over them. And what do we learn in this chapter? Their sins have not, I mean, their sins have not stopped God's ears from hearing their cry. I mean, that's an extraordinary thing, isn't it? Uh, One commentator said the people's sin should not be underestimated, right? They have done wickedness and, and, and uh, they have been stubborn. They are a hard-necked people. He says the, sins, the people's sin should not be underestimated, but neither should the mercy of God be underestimated. The mercy of God cannot be underestimated. Forgiven sinners, these people are if they're looking to Christ. Forgiven sinners, the grace of God is undeserved favor. The grace of God is undeserved favor. Nobody deserves the grace of God. It is undeserved. And think about the loving character of God. He's like a father who has pity on his children. He's like a father who has pity on his children. Um, Dale Ralph Davis says, These foolish, stubborn people do not cease to be objects of Yahweh's compassion. Again, let no sin be glossed over. Let no one excuse its God-denying wickedness. But surely, if you are a child of God, you rejoice to see that your God is mulish on mercy. Stubborn in giving his mercy, right? that your sin does not dry up the fountain of his compassions and that his pity refuses to let go of his people. Now, it's hard for, it's hard for you perfectionists to accept that, isn't it? It's hard, for the, it's hard for you legalists to accept that. It's hard for the legalism my own legalism and my own perfectionism to accept that. Because what I expect of others, right? If you're a legalist, you expect perfection in a particular area from somebody else, right? And, and if they don't give that to you, then you relegate them to the, the darkness. But God, think of his mercy. Think of his kindness, Think of the fact that, that he pities us. Think of the fact that, 
that he is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. You know, and, and if, if that is true, I mean, okay, let me be a little bit um, anachronistic. Is that the word I'm looking for out of time? Here, if that was true for these people who lived before Jesus' crucifixion, how much more for us who know of God's compassions more deeply and with more clarity, right? Um, They looked forward to what hadn't happened. We look back to what is finished. Finished. And yet we have a tendency to think that God is only pleased with us if we've, for the moment, been perfect. Is that why God is pleased with you? Is that why God was pleased with these people? Here, is that why he opened his ears to hear their prayers even though they had rejected him? Which was a wicked sin. No, the only reason that he had mercy upon them is because of what Jesus Christ had done for them. God is gracious, and what proves it? The death of his son proves it. He's gracious towards sinners. Now, if you deny that, if you deny it through... It's always good for a preacher to sound like an antinomian at times, and I'm going to sound like an antinomian, and I'm not. Um, To deny it and think that you're pleasing God is by your law-keeping is to disparage the very grace of God and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You must, you must accept the fact that God has been gracious to you in Jesus Christ and in that alone. If you don't, then you disparage God and His grace. 1 John 2.1 says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Okay, so he starts with, I'm not going to sound like an antinomian. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Now, who knows what comes next? But if you do sin, what? You have an advocate. Okay, but you have to, but, but know the details of this. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous, and He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. That's good news. He's made God happy. Right? Propitiation. He has appeased the wrath of God. Jesus has. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Not only just for ours, church, that I'm writing to, but for the sins of every church right, in the whole world, God's people. So here the people have, have 
have been wicked. And yet we see God saying, I've regarded the prayer of my people. All, all that we can do in the face of that is say, God is gracious and he is a father. But we must do that, right? That is how we have to approach God again and again. Remember his grace. His grace is sufficient for your salvation. Right? And so it, it, that's not to forego repentance. It's not to forego the, the confessions of sin. It's not to forego the work that we have to do in our sanctification. It's not to forego any of those things. But fundamentally, as a foundation, we have to believe in the grace of God. And that's the only salvation for sinners, right? For wicked sinners, it's not your law-keeping that makes you, makes you that puts God in your debt. It's not your law-keeping that makes you pleasant to God. It's Christ's law-keeping on your behalf, and it's His grace. You just don't deserve it. Now, don't say... Let's just pray. Father, we have indeed, even after coming to a knowledge of you, sinned against you in so many ways. And and for many of us, that has clouded our judgment concerning your fatherhood, your kindness, your goodness, and ultimately your grace. And so, Father, in in trying to to cope with our sins, we we have uh, become like the Pharisees who put up little laws, something, something that we could possibly keep, like the tithing of mint and cumin, so that that we could be in your favor. But Father, we acknowledge now that it is your grace and your grace alone that saves sinners. And we rejoice in it. We will not be so foolish to think that we can merit what only your Son can merit. So, Father, I pray that we wouldn't disparage your grace because we see so much thoughtlessness concerning your law. But ultimately, Father, I pray that we wouldn't disparage your grace because it is our salvation. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for all the favors you've given to us in him, all the promises that have been fulfilled in him on our behalf. We can add nothing to it, Father. And I pray that we would all accept that and rejoice in that fact. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.